You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or Amanda. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 20th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest is James Banal, Professor of Law, Criminology, and Criminal Justice at Cal State Long Beach. He reframes former felons as a legitimate talent pool for jury duty, only it's not possible in most states. We'll be right back after a station break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let me introduce my guest for the full hour. He is James Banal, Professor of Law, Criminology and Criminal Justice and Executive Director of the Cal State University Long Beach Project Rebound, all at the Cal State University Long Beach, bringing the culmination of over 10 years of work in his brand new book entitled 20 Million Angry Men, the case for including convicted felons in our jury system, published by the University of California Press. James Banal completed his undergraduate degree at Gettysburg College, also at UC Irvine's Criminology, Law and Society, his master's in education at Wagner College, his JD at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, and his LLM at Georgetown University Law Center. Jamie and I met several years ago at a groundbreaking forum in a heady season presented by the Long Beach Opera along the theme of criminal justice. We are so fortunate to have him bring us along for re-examining our own take on the role, the opportunities from formerly convicted felons being integrated into our society. James Bernal comes to us today from his home in San Clemente. Welcome to Ask a Leader, James Bernal. Well, thank you, Claudia. I appreciate you having me. Well, congratulations on completing your wonderful thought piece about criminal justice, as well as, I would say, human nature. I want to give a shout out to Carol Serron, whom you acknowledge very early in the book. And Jamie, you open with your own Ironic experience that as a former convicted felon, you could be admitted to the California bar, you could be entrusted to represent a defendant, but you could not serve on a jury. Tell us the that genesis of your book. Yeah, so thanks, Claudia. Yeah, so I am a bar attorney in California. Uh, I practice here. Uh, a little bit about me, I'm, I'm not from California. I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, I went off to college, you know, when I was 18 on a wrestling scholarship and, you know, completed my undergraduate degree. And when I finished, I took what I thought at the time was basically my dream job. I was uh, the youngest division one head wrestling coach in the country. I was working in New York City, you know, an exciting place, you know, when you're in your early 20s. So I signed a contract for two years uh, to finish a master's degree while I was the head coach at Wagner College. And a year into my graduate studies and my coaching career, uh, I had a DUI wreck, uh, a really bad one. I drove down to Philadelphia to 
um, go out one night with a friend of mine who I had wrestled with in college and uh, we drank way too much and I drove home and on the ride home, we wrecked a car and he was killed sitting next to me um, and I was injured pretty severely. I ended up going back to Wagner College uh, to finish my graduate degree. I resigned my coaching position almost immediately. Um, and about three days after taking my last final for that master's degree, I was sentenced to three and a half to seven years in prison. I went to prison. I took my LSATs while I was inside um, and ultimately began law school upon release. Um, I went to law school, finished. But one of the things, obviously, that was concerning to me as a law student with a serious criminal conviction was uh, the idea that I may never be allowed to practice law. I wasn't sure that California would allow me to practice given that I had been convicted and because I, um, you know, in many's eyes, had moral character and fitness issues. So I went through that process uh, in 2008, uh, had my hearing with the state bar, passed the California bar exam, and was told by the state bar soon thereafter that they had approved me. So I was licensed officially in December of 2008. Uh, for the first year of my career, I did a lot of criminal law, uh, appellate work. I worked a lot with a pretty well-known attorney in San Diego, sitting second chair on a number of criminal trials. Uh, two were death penalty cases. And then about a year after I was barred, I got called for jury duty. And I you know, showed up at the courthouse, a courthouse that I was very familiar with, had tried cases uh, with uh, my associate in that courthouse, maybe a week prior to being called for jury duty, uh, showed up, uh, sat in the jury lounge with everyone else, watched uh, this inspirational video of what jury service means and how it's so important to participate civically. Uh, Rob Lowe narrated the video. As I say in the book, we are in Southern California, right? So of course it was Rob Lowe. Uh, and soon was asked to fill out a juror questionnaire. We all were. And in filling out that juror questionnaire, there was a question on there that said, have you ever been convicted of a felony? So of course I checked yes and was told soon thereafter uh, to stand along with anyone else who had checked that box um, and to go to the back of the jury lounge and to uh, let the clerk know that I had checked that box and I would be given what they called at the time a permanent excuse. I asked the uh, jury you know, clerk uh, at that point, you know, I asked, I expressed some frustration and said to her, you know, look, I was here, I don't know, not two weeks ago. Um, at a courtroom down the hall, uh, working second chair on a death penalty case. Uh, but yet you're telling me that I'm essentially not fit to serve as a juror. Her response was, uh, write your congressman if you don't like California's juror eligibility criteria. Instead of writing my congressperson, I should say, uh, I instead embarked on what has now become a decades long research agenda, exploring why we exclude folks with felony convictions from jury service and the impact of those exclusions. Um, and that's really the basis for the book. I can't say honestly that the book grew out of that experience, um, but shortly before that experience, I was considering you know, working in this area and that experience of course then solidified it for me. Um, the sort of hypocrisy, the irony, I, I just couldn't understand why this restriction was still um, was still used, was still enforced, when folks with records, myself included, could become licensed attorneys in this jurisdiction. Um, and I wanted to know, well, is this discrepancy, does this exist nationally? Are there other states like this? Um, and so one of my first articles I ever wrote about this topic really explored that. And what I found at the time, this was back in 2009, was that 29 states and in the federal system 
someone with a felony conviction can become a licensed attorney, but can never for the rest of their life serve as a juror. And so that began the exploration of this topic. Well, thank you for that whole narrative. I appreciate that. And I know that is uh, rich for listeners to take in, but the book's cover is gray. And I think, Jamie, that's an elegant signal that nuance is coming, nuance about our criminal justice system. So your research goals are twofold. You want to bring us along to understand the justification of excluding convicted felons and then talk and let us know what the second piece is, the consequences of eliminating this sizable pool of people to serve on the jury. So perhaps first you could talk about, give us a very brief primer on what jury selection is, please. Sure. So if you're called for jury duty or jury service, you'll show up at the courthouse, you'll be escorted into the jury lounge and you'll be in that lounge with, you know, depending on the day, it could be 50 people, it could be 100, 200 people. You will all be asked then to, if you didn't fill one out ahead of time to you know, fill out a jury questionnaire. If that jury questionnaire reflects that you are eligible for jury duty, then you will be escorted at some point that day to a courtroom along with you know, any number of other folks that showed up for jury duty. So it could be another 20, 30, 40, depending on the, the sort of significance of the case. And then jury selection will start. Yeah, that part and, especially, those, right. the kinds of, the sort of two sections of questioning of everybody. Sure, so jury selection essentially breaks down into to two pieces, right? Well, it first involves the attorneys asking various questions of the folks that are um, there, that are potential jurors. Um, the judge may also ask a few questions if he or she uh, has you know, things of note that they would like to hear from the jurors about. Once the question and answer period is over, and sometimes during, uh, attorneys can make motions to exclude for cause. Those are essentially, those, those motions essentially say that this person is unfit for whatever reason to serve as a juror in this case. Most often it's bias or some relationship. This is the to, voir dire, this part? Th- this is part of voir dire, yes. Okay. And if uh, an attorney moves for cause, the judge will then assess that motion, right? The judge will either um, exclude uh, or the judge will deny the motion and the juror will not be excluded. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. Uh, there are challenges for cause. There are also peremptory challenges. Yeah. Peremptory challenges are challenges that either attorney can use um, and really doesn't have to give a reason, right? It could be that someone's wearing a funny T-shirt and they think that they will not be serious enough to engage in this very serious exercise. So or they that mean- their high-priced consultant at their, at their table says, I'm reading a very particular thing and this person is not going to work out for us. I mean, there's like a whole staff that's checking out every little thing that the j- prospective jurors give off. Yes. So uh, in terms of, right. So, I mean, if you do have a jury consulting firm assisting you, right, they're going to advise you on how to use your challenge for co- challenges for cause. And they're going to advise you on how to use your peremptory challenges. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of core of the process is, the judge either decides whether someone's fit through a challenge for cause or the attorney sort of on his or her own decides they want to exercise one of their limited number of peremptory strikes to remove a juror for some reason. Now, they're not allowed to use those peremptory strikes in a race-based way, right? So they can't exclude folks because they are of a certain race or ethnic background but or gender, right? 
uh, but they can use them to exclude for a variety of other reasons. And as long as they have a valid reason, right, pretense for excluding someone through a peremptory strike, that's going to be upheld. So your book lays out the pool of jurors in this U.S. of A., Mm -hmm. And you give us a clear idea of what happens when former convicted felons, they've done their time, they're returned to society, and you talk about, the, the title is Two Million Angry Men, and not, you don't really ever mention the women, but they're, they're in there somewhere, but that it's, it's because of the, the play, of course. But So as I read your book, you bring up that 8%, that number has seemed high to me too, that 8% of the general public is a composed of former convicted felons. 23% of the public are African-American adults. 33 and a third percent are black males that are the former convicted felons. 50% of black Georgians are considered not eligible for serving in jury. And you you coined the expression in your book, this wonderful term, jurymandering, to encompass those people that are not a part of the whole jury pool. Right, and so you know, the title of my book, 20 Million Angry Men, yes, that 20 million encompasses women as well. Um, I used it as a play on words, you know, obviously uh, the old movie, right? 12 Angry Men about, you know, the jury in New York City and the one holdout and, and how he then, you know, persuades the rest of the jury to, to acquit. In terms of, you know, those numbers, right? Yeah, it is 8% of the adult population. So the 20 million uh, folks in the United States who, and it's almost 21 million at this point, who wow. live with a felony conviction, um, that represents 8% of our adult population, right? Adult, you know, relevant here because we're talking about jury service. But in terms of those, those numbers uh, with respect to African-American men, adult men, um, and African-Americans in Georgia, yes, I thought shocking when I first read them. One third of African-American adult men do walk around with a felony conviction. And you explain the factors um, in the interest of time. It's where, this is where listeners, you pick up your own copy. Uh, mm -hmm. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is James Banal, Professor of Law, Criminology and Criminal Justice, uh, School of Criminology, Criminal Justice and Emergency Management and Executive Director at the Cal State University Long Beach Project Rebound. All of this at Cal State University Long Beach. And we're talking about his newly published 20 Million Angry Men, the case for including convicted felons in our jury system published by University of California Press. So the concern with this rather sizable segment in the country is that by removing the segment, there are two ways we lose out. There's the social capital opportunity of incorporating former convicted felons back into society, as well as an opportunity what convicted felons can bring back in how um, amazingly judicious their sensibilities are as they serve on a jury. Could you uh, talk about those two win-wins? Were they to actually be a part of the jury pool? Yeah, so I think it's important to first talk a little bit, just briefly, if, if I have a little bit of time about just what does this look like in the United States, right? So in the United States, what we know from, you know, from national surveys is that 26 states and the federal government permanently exclude folks with felony convictions from jury service. 13 states, you have to, you know, complete your sentence. 
Eight states and the District of Columbia enforce what we call hybrid restrictions. So there's different length of, of incarceration or length of term, uh, length of sentence, type of crime. Those all come into play. Then there's two states where there's uh, challenges for cause that will be entertained lifetime. And then only one state really has no restrictions on this. And we'll um, talk about that. And we'll talk about California at the end. But we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll bring that. We'll talk about Maine a little bit later. But we're sure. talking generally about the country now. Yes. There are two justifications for the exclusion of folks with felony convictions from jury service. The first one alleges that folks with felony convictions lack the character to serve. And as I talk about in the book, in chapter two, that justification is confused, right? There's two perspectives on that. Does a lack of character make folks bad jurors? Or does a lack of character make the public look at juries and question the legitimacy of their verdicts because they include someone with a felony conviction? So that's the first sort of justification for excluding folks that have had criminal justice contact that resulted in a felony conviction. The other justification is if we put folks with felony convictions on juries, that they'll hang every jury they're on, that they will sympathize with criminal defendants, harbor this adversarial position um, against the prosecution, and will simply vote to acquit in all instances. There is no empirical evidence out there that supports either of these justifications. I sought to test those in the book. That was the first mission that I had in the book. And in testing those, what I found was that, frankly, when you push on them empirically, um, they don't hold water, right? They fall apart. Um, And I can talk a little bit, you know, about the studies that that make that up. Um, But to your point about, um, you know, what we gain and what we lose, you know, in terms of the character, let's start with that. Uh, We, you know, ran the first mock jury, I ran the first mock jury experiment that has ever been conducted that included both uh, folks with felony convictions and folks without, right? And that's in Southern California? Because I think the the geographic area sometimes is important. Right. So I ran that mock jury experiment, the first to include folks with felony convictions and folks without in a large county in Southern California, right? And that's as specific as I can be for sort of research purposes. Fair enough. It was a large county in Southern California. We ran a number of juries with hundreds of participants And what came of that was some really great data. What we saw in the quantitative was that when we compared folks with felony convictions to those without, they actually raised more novel case facts. And they also participated for longer as a proportion of their jury's deliberation time. So in a nutshell, they paid attention to the facts and they talked more during deliberations. Interestingly, we also looked at, did they have conflicts with other jurors? Did they reveal their status? And I'll be frank with you, what really surprised me from the data, they did. Every person with a conviction in our study revealed their status. Um, And they did so in the course of discussions during deliberations. And no one was met with stigmatization, prejudice from their fellow jurors, right? And what we saw was their fellow jurors actually appreciated their honesty and then turned to them as almost an authority on certain things, for instance, the stimulus trial that we used, that we showed everybody, the defendant had been, was on parole at the time that he was arrested. There were multiple non-felon jurors, right, who turned to our felon jurors and, you know, sort of asked questions. What is parole like? Is the defendant telling the truth? If he doesn't check in, he's going to go back to prison. And so all of these answers were given by our felon jurors. So what we saw was this experiential knowledge that they had with respect to the criminal justice system that was incredibly valuable in disentangling case facts and then later in applying law to those facts. So in that way, there really isn't the claim that someone lacks character and will impact the functioning of the jury, someone with a felony conviction, that wasn't there. And in fact, we saw just the opposite. 
that they were conscientious, thoughtful, and contributed in meaningful, productive ways without conflict. Um, so, so that was the sort of end of the character rationale in terms of our research. Um, the and one other thing that you mentioned yeah. is that they volunteered to be the foreman for the jury often. They did, a number of them did, yes. Which again, we found surprising, or I found surprising, given you know that there is a stigma right in the world with having a conviction and you know for me personally when i was in law school i didn't tell anyone that i had a conviction until mm -hmm. i was you know at georgetown in my llm program um, i can remember it to this day my class was juvenile justice with james foreman jr a uh, great professor at georgetown now at yale and, and that was the first class i felt comfortable uh, revealing my status so the fact that well jamie we, I, what happened when you revealed that so james foreman jr is, is a noted uh, you know, he writes a lot about uh, civil rights and his father was instrumental in the civil rights movement. And, and no, I mean, that class, I had classmates that asked some questions about the conviction and about my experiences with the conviction, but I wasn't condemned or I did, at least I didn't feel stigmatized or, or, or any prejudice after revealing. And in fact, it freed me up then to rely on that background in a lot of my scholarship um, where it would inform things I was writing about. So I was actually, you know, I had a good experience with that, but you know, we just never know who we tell and, and what their reaction is going to be. So for us to bring in study participants with a conviction and expect that they would uniformly tell, you know, 11 other strangers or seven or eight other strangers about their criminal conviction, um, that was really surprising that that was the choice they made. Because I can tell you from my own personal experience that all of them have assuredly faced stigmatization in the past. Yes. Um, and to take that chance, I think is really you know, for me, it was remarkable. Um, and we, I know we're going to talk about this later in the interview, but when we interviewed folks up in Maine who had served on juries, who were folks with felony convictions, the importance that they placed on their job as jurors, frankly, in looking back, it's not as surprising that the folks we brought in in the California mock jury study did reveal their status. Because what we got from the folks that we interviewed who had felony convictions was this sense that jury service and the jury are you know, of paramount importance in the United States. Um, many of them had a jury trial when they were convicted. Um, so they understand the significance of the job. And so maybe that is one of the reasons that, um, that we had folks uh, that felt it appropriate to reveal their status in our mock jury experiment. And you talk about the social capital that's built up from participating as voters when they're re-enfranchised as well as what the main experience is. So that I'll leave that though for people to find in their, their copies they acquire. And yes, the second justification for serving. Sure, so, so we have that character justification which we found no support for. And then there's also this inherent bias justification. That's what they call it. And the inherent bias justification, as I mentioned, simply says you're gonna favor criminal defendants and, and feel adversarial towards the state. In the first empirical study I conducted on this topic, I compared folks with convictions um, to folks without convictions who are eligible jurors to then folks who were enrolled in law school, so law students who are also jury eligible. And what I found in comparing those three groups on a measure of pretrial bias was that in fact, law students and folks with convictions had very similar pretrial biases, statistically indistinguishable pretrial biases wow. that, that yeah. favored the defense. We later did a study where we compared those three groups to law enforcement personnel. And what we found was that law enforcement personnel were as likely to be pro-prosecution as folks with convictions were to be pro-defense. 
So what does all this mean? Well, if we're gonna stick to the inherent bias rationale strictly, these findings would mean that we would have to then exclude both law students and law enforcement personnel from the jury process, right? Create a class, create a class in a sense. Now in California, law enforcement personnel are not permitted to serve as jurors, but there's only a handful of states nationally where that's the case. In many states, law enforcement personnel are allowed to serve while folks with convictions are not. And that's where I sort of start talking about gerrymandering because what we're really doing is, is I argue, excluding and discriminating against a certain viewpoint, right? We're okay with a pro-prosecution bias, but we're not okay with a pro-defense bias. And that's sort of the idea of gerrymandering. And I have to admit, I didn't crumb up with the term. It comes from a, a 1973 article in the Iowa Law Review, but it hasn't been used in a while, but I think, no. fits, I think fits perfectly here, right? We're talking about viewpoint discrimination. Um, and in the jury context, right, that can be significant, especially when we're, we're bringing citizens together to share viewpoints, hopefully balancing those viewpoints and getting to sort of the root of justice, right? Well, it really matters with mandatory sentencing and Absolutely. all those other requirements that are heaped on in the, the jurisprudence system. Absolutely. And so you asked about Maine, and, I, and I'll just touch on that briefly. I did a lot of field work in Maine a few years ago. Uh, Maine is the only state that doesn't have a statute even addressing folks with convictions. Since the um, 70s. And jury service, correct. They actually, correct, since the 70s. So what that means then is in theory, someone who's in prison in Maine could be called for jury duty and could ask to be escorted to jury duty, essentially in cuffs, you know, to serve as a juror. Now that doesn't happen logistically, uh, but Maine doesn't have a statute addressing this. So we thought, I thought it was the perfect place to, to do some field research. So what I did in Maine was I interviewed a whole bunch of almost two dozen Uh, formerly incarcerated people, people with felony convictions, who either had served on a jury or who had been called and dismissed. And what I found from talking to them was that being included in this process was incredibly important to them. And I have to tell you, I was so surprised by that. You know, most folks don't want a jury summons. Don't Most folks never want to be called. Um, The pay isn't great. You have to miss work. You have to, there's a lot of sitting around and boredom. So for these people who had been subjected to the system, who had been labeled with a, a convicted felon to say to me, I can't wait to be called, uh, or I couldn't wait to be called when I was, I was so excited to show up and, and do my duty. Um, that astounded me, I have to be honest. And they talked about this eligibility as a show of trust by the state. And they felt very committed to not betraying that trust. They wanted to go and they wanted to serve as ideal jurors. They talked about knowing what the ideal juror was, completely unbiased, uh, engaged, thoughtful, and they, they were striving, all of them, at least as they reported it to me, to live up to that standard because they felt that this was so important. Along with interviewing folks with convictions, I also interviewed court personnel, uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and trial court judges. And what I found from from those folks was that this is not something they really ever think about. Um, It comes up in the course of jury selection. Judges gave me this sort of list of criteria that they use, and it's pretty standard across the state, um, when they question uh, someone with a felony conviction as to whether they're fit. So they'll ask, what was the crime you were convicted of? Is it similar to the one at bar? How long ago was your conviction? Um, What does your life look like since the conviction? questions about their rehabilitation, um, and a pretty standard set of questions. But apart from that, they're treated like everyone else, right? They're assessed 
at an individual level um, and they are, and their fitness is determined on a case by case basis. Okay. When I talked about sort of this idea of intergroup contact theory, you know, when you, you talked about social capital, um, yeah, in Maine, we saw this effect where we were mixing, right, in real life, folks with felony convictions and folks without. And the sense that I got from the research was that um, it actually softened prejudices and stigmatization towards folks with convictions because they're engaged in this process. And because these folks, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, fellow jurors, they were around people with convictions, you know, pretty regularly. And so their views uh, weren't as, as harsh as maybe you would see in another jurisdiction where this doesn't occur. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really amazing. So, Jamie, do you want to read a few of the observations that are in your book? We will, this is not a spoiler alert, but give people a flavor what it sounds like. Sure. So I wrote a passage, um, and this is a passage describing our mock jury experiment. Um, and, it, and it speaks directly to this idea um, that people with convictions will acquit criminal defendants in all instances. And what I say in the book is, um, in stark contrast to the assumption that convicted felons would be lenient, almost all participants compared their own circumstances to those of potential defendants and suggested an inclination to convict out of a sense of fair play and deservedness. Kevin, a 48-year-old man who spent two years in prison for robbery, explained succinctly, it could be the same crime that I got my felonies with, and I'd have to be impartial. But that's just the way I am. I'd just be impartial. Now, I wouldn't say, well, uh, 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 I did two years for the same thing and this and that. No, not guilty. No, no, that's not me. I did mine. You do yours. So rather than, than, than find leniency, what we found was a sense, at least among some participants, of this hazing mentality, right? That, <laughs> that they had done theirs and, and they had served their time for the, the crime they committed and you should own up to what you did and you should serve the time for what you did. Again, in stark contrast to what we assume. Uh, there's another uh, a passage that I'd like to read uh, and it's, it's close to the one I just read in the book, but it all, so it also relates to the mock jury experiments. And this is, this is what I say about this in terms of folks with convictions bringing experiential knowledge to the process. I say many participants highlighted the practical knowledge gained through experiences with the criminal justice system, opining that such knowledge made them more accurate judges of a criminal defendant's credibility. Jimmy, a 34-year-old man called for jury service but dismissed, explained that a criminal lifestyle amounted to a type of informal juror training. He says this, We've had different life experiences, so we're trained without having official training to, to look at things differently, to not just take things for face value and to be able to look between the lines. It is more like having the street knowledge than book knowledge. There's definitely a difference there. Concisely articulating the perceived value of felon jurors then, Lisa, a 36-year-old woman who had committed a violent felony, suggested this, that former offenders posed a unique ability to accurately judge the credibility of witnesses and evidence. She says, former offenders have seen both sides. You know what I mean? You can't bullshit. Bull you know what I mean? Like, you know, been there, done that. You can tell if someone's trying to bullshit you or someone, you know, you know the lies because you've said the lies. You've lived that life. Okay. So that, that really does give us, and there are more contributions, but thank you for those. So people have a, an idea of that, what the former felons bring to a process, a critical thinking like what a non-felon would have been clueless, I'd be clueless about. Right. And I mean, it, look, what we found in this mock jury experiment was that, like I say, and, and, and like I think those passages demonstrate, is that 
you know, folks who've been through the system, they have a knowledge, right? They have, a, they have an experience that, you know, is incredibly valuable in this context, right? Um, criminal law standards are notoriously vague, right? Reasonable doubt, um, beyond a reasonable doubt, probable cause. Um, lots of those things are totality of the circumstance type assessments. So more information for those analyses, I would argue is always better. And folks with convictions bring a lot of information from their experiences with the system to that discussion. And frankly, uh, sort of uh, dispense that information, at least in, in my findings, in a very even-handed, impartial way. So Jamie, how are your own students responding to this analysis? Is, is the culture shifting from the biases and the stigmas that are embedded in older people's thinking? You know, I think with, with this restriction, the exclusion of folks with convictions from jury service, I think that what happened with this restriction, it's a little different than voting. It never really received the type of attention that it ought to have um, in the literature. And I'm, I, I sort of proffer a couple of reasons for that in the book. And I think one of them is just this general apathy about jury service or frankly, distaste among the general public for jury service. And I just don't think, look, let's be, let's be frank, right? Voting is a far sexier topic, especially when we have national elections and then midterms, right? Uh, jury selection is rather mundane. Uh, the whole jury process is done, you know, in almost in total secrecy, right? Once the trial ends. So there is this sort of black box effect, right? When we talk about the jury. And so I just don't think it received a lot of attention for that reason, right? And, and among others, but since it didn't receive a lot of attention I just think a lot of folks, one, didn't really know about the restriction and two, um, if they did know about it really didn't know why we did it or what the, the consequences of doing it were. And so my job as I saw it was to you know, go out and collect this data and, and try to inform folks about, you know, why are we doing this? Is it a good reason? Are they good reasons, I should say, or what are those impacts of this, right? And what I found is when you, when you lay out the empirical evidence for people um, and they get to read it, they get to criticize it, they get to assess it, as that empirical evidence gets more and more and more, eventually then the sort of prejudices and the stigma associated with folks that have felony convictions tends to break down, right? Um, the arguments that I heard, I know we're going to talk about California later, the arguments I heard during the legislative process regarding SB 310 up in Sacramento were entirely emotive. They were entirely emotion-based, um, fear-mongering. They were not empirical, uh, frankly, because I just don't think there's a counter to the empirical argument, right? Um, it's simply bad policy, and the science tells us that. Well, you had a wall. We can talk now about California. That's a okay with me. That you you've had a wall of these really stiff district attorneys and law enforcement, fully uniformed uh, officers that were really staring down the legislators. So talk about how California's ambivalence exemplifies this uphill battle for reform. Talk about California's SB three ten, what it was, and how it was undone, even uh, despite your own attempts to testify toward that support of the original draft of SB 310? Yes, yeah, so the original draft of SB 310, to the best of my knowledge in talking to Senator Skinner was that SB 310 was- Senator Nancy Skinner. Just Senator Nancy Skinner from uh, Berkeley. When we first spoke about this and the possibility of coming up to testify, the, the version of the bill that was being proposed, um, I think was her favorite version, 
which was essentially a version like Maine, uh, which was no version, right? That once you are released from prison, you can serve on a jury um, if you go to prison or, you know, if you're convicted of a felony, maybe you have felony parole, you're allowed to serve. You, know, you, you never lose the right to serve because you aren't incarcerated. That version was, of course, you know, changed. Uh, and to get to the final, there were some carve-outs. And the two carve-outs that exist in SB 310 are these. The first is folks that are on active state supervision are still not allowed to serve if they have a felony conviction. Like a uh, parole. One, That's right. Parole, probation. Once they're off supervision, then they're now eligible to serve. And then the second carve out is that folks with um, 290 registrable offenses, so those are offenses of a sexual nature, um, those folks are permanently still excluded from jury service. Now, when I testified as to this, I explained that my data, my science, you know, the, the, the empirical evidence that I had collected really didn't suggest a need for any carve outs. Um, I had no evidence to suggest that folks on supervision or folks who had sexually based offenses posed any more of a threat to the jury process than anybody else with a felony conviction. Um, but still, you know, I think that was part of legislative compromise and I, and I completely understand that. Even the bill in that form, um, the opposition to that early form of the bill, again, took the form of straight emotive arguments, right? So when, when I went up to testify, I believe the second time, um, there were representatives from the District Attorneys Association, representatives from the Sheriff's Association, who, you know, put forth two real, you know, emotion-laden arguments. Uh, the first was simply that if we allow folks with convictions to serve, then all of the courthouses in the state will have to increase security because we'll have multiple felons walking through the halls of that courthouse. The second argument was that if we were to allow folks who were on supervision to serve as jurors, so on probation or parole, um, if they violated that probation or parole, it would disrupt the trial process. So you, both of those arguments, though, really are specious, right? The first argument that we would have to increase security at the courthouse is simply ridiculous. The day that that argument was made, there were no less than 50 folks with felony convictions in the room with this gentleman, um, and security at the Capitol was business as usual. The second argument about, you know, if someone were to violate supervision, it would disrupt the trial process. Well, that's the whole point of having alternate jurors, right? At some point during a trial, someone may walk across the street to get a taco out of the taco truck and get hit by a car or have a heart attack or have a family emergency that they can't finish you know, their obligation to the jury. That's why we have alternates. So it would do little to disrupt the process. So really those things were designed to conjure fear and I think to win support that way. In terms of you know, fact-based arguments in opposition of SB 310, there were really none. So when you mentioned then too that there's a patchwork of counties around California, now that each one of them adopts SB 310, what's the story with Orange County? So SB 310 is the law of the land. So the counties don't have the discretion as to whether or not to adopt SB 310 or not. So in California now, folks with felony convictions are categorically eligible for jury duty unless they're on active state supervision, probation or parole, or unless they have a 290 registrable offense. None of that has changed. Uh, in terms of the study that you're referring to, yes, post SB 310, I conducted a study to see how were counties notifying their residents who had felony convictions about jury service. And what we found was that, and I, and I have a co-author on this piece, uh, her name's Lauren Davis, fantastic uh, law student. Uh, what we found was that in roughly two thirds of the counties in California, 
there was no information provided regarding the legislative change made by SB 310, or there was inaccurate or misleading information provided, suggesting that you needed to take an extra step before you were eligible again, let's say. Like, like for instance, what kind of how, so for instance, high, some high a bar step? Sure. So some counties were telling residents of that county who had felony convictions that if they wanted to be eligible, they had to apply for and receive a certificate of rehabilitation. Nowhere in SB 310 is that a requirement. Really? So, oh so those types of obstacles still exist. And now you asked me specifically with respect to Orange County. Yes. Orange County, Orange County did uh, publish misleading or inaccurate information. Orange County in our study, uh, we found that in August of 2020, which was when we sampled all the data. So that was a full eight months after SB 310 went into effect. Now, granted, right, it's at the height of COVID um, right. and counties had other things to worry about. So we did give them a break on, you know, obviously this probably wasn't their first priority, but still eight months after a legislative change, you would have expected their website, right, to reflect that change. Orange County uh, published misleading information about SB 310. They published information um, in their juror information section that instructed jurors to disqualify themselves if convicted of a felony or malfeasance in office. Um, that's, that's absolutely, wrong. that's contrary to SB 310. Uh, I will say this for all your listeners. If you live in Orange County and you have a felony conviction, please do not disqualify yourself. Um, you are not disqualified. You are eligible for jury duty unless you have, are on active state supervision or you have a 290 registrable offense. If you are not one of those two populations, please show up at the courthouse, answer your summons um, and serve like everyone else because you are now eligible to do so. My guest for the full hour is James Banal, professor of law, criminology and criminal justice in the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice and Emergency Management at Cal State University. He's executive director of the Cal State University Long Beach Project Rebound. We're talking about his newly published 20 million angry men, the case for including convicted felons in our jury system. It's published by the University of California Press. So I guess you could say a prescription for our listeners involvement is that we, if, I mean, we know, we know who's done time in our circles. And so we could, we could sort of that's something we can offer in helping them build the social capital. Say, hey, I, I, I just want to make sure, you know, you know about this opportunity. And uh, sure. I'm understanding that some of the official bulletins coming out of the Orange County District Attorney or Sheriff's Office is not correct about juror duty for former felons. I mean, that's, that's one thing. Is there anything else or is there a way to refine what I just suggested? No, I think that's a great strategy. You know, another strategy that can be done at a more official level that we we ask the counties to do is to is to actively inform. Well, first of all, to to re, to to put folks with felony convictions who have been removed from the the juror wheel, right? The wheel that we pick from randomly, they need to be put back onto the juror wheel, right? And that and that needs to be done, you know, asap. Then, in terms of publicizing the legislative change, what we know on the voting side is that when you don't publicize a legislative change restoring a right, right? So let's say voting on that side. What you, what you get is lower voter turnout and you get this sort of de facto disenfranchisement where a lack of information leads folks to believe, well, I have a felony conviction, I'm sure I can't vote. And they just assume that without knowing any better. Um, even there's confusion among election officials with respect to the statutes regarding folks with felony convictions voting. On the jury side, 
the empirical evidence from the voting side is instructive, right? Right. What they found on the voting side was notifications should look like this. They should be clear and concise language, simple language. The restoration of the right, the notification should be given by itself, not as part of a packet of larger, you know, um, uh, release paperwork, right? It should be something that stands alone. And as part of that notification, there should be some form of encouragement. It should say, you know, we welcome you now to jury duty. Um, you bring a valuable knowledge to our system. If you're called, please show up. This was the legislative change that made you eligible. Uh, that type of a notice to folks with convictions goes a long way towards preventing, again, what we talked about, gerrymandering, right? Um, or a de facto sense of gerrymandering, where people just assume they can't serve so they don't show up. So Jamie, if, if the, the stats sort of hold, if, if nationally 8% of the adult population are in this category, we can pretty much say 8% of Orange County residents, of Orange County adults have served. You, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't extrapolate that out without knowing the numbers, but I think that you're, I mean, you're correct. Generally, you're correct. so that's a lot of people around. It's so a lot of people. It's yeah. a lot of opportunity. And, Absolutely. And it's a sort of a way to say, here, I'm, I've got your back. I, I want to help you incorporate into social society, civil society. You have value and that kind of thing. And I, and I want to get a little bit back at the stigma. And I've noticed it's been in the news about the dating apps that you know, people can log on to that they're now offering like a criminal record screening, a verification of some kind. It's sort of perpetuating that stigma. It's assuming people want to know so they can rule out uh, encountering that person with the, with the record. Yeah, I mean, online information about criminal histories is ubiquitous. There's been a whole bunch of studies about this and uh, not a whole bunch, but a handful of really good ones that that demonstrate that, yeah, I mean, people's criminal history information is readily available online for anyone to see. Without getting much into the privacy aspect of it, uh, what I would like to touch on is, you know, having that information available is really only an issue when the folks that are consuming that information have a view of people who have been convicted uh, that they are, you know, lack character or inhuman or somehow these threatening monsters, right? If those, you know, if those attitudes didn't exist, I feel like you would have far less appetite for these online search engines and these, and these clearing houses for criminal records. In terms of, you know, what I think about the stigma, look, I mean, not to get too personal, but I mean, I bought my first house last year. And prior to that, I rented apartments. I have, you know, a PhD and a law degree and I'm a lawyer. Um, and when we were renting apartments, I still wouldn't put down my name on the initial application. I always went on as an add-on because I was afraid that, you know, they would run a criminal background check and wouldn't rent an apartment to my wife and I. So it exists. It's long-term. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know where we, I think where we start with that is, you know, a lot of the first person language changes have been good. Um, I think also, you know, trying to adjust or lift a lot of these collateral consequences. Um, I think that goes a long way too towards maybe changing the public's view. You mentioned that California had a, a sense of ambivalence about juror exclusion. I think that, you know, we, we did a public opinion poll in California and found that it was roughly 50% of Californians supported allowing folks with convictions to serve, felony convictions that is, and around 50% um, did not feel that folks with felony convictions could serve. So it was a split. Um, you know, that ambivalence, while we would have liked to have seen support, 
given the empirical data for felon, you know, for inclusion, um, I think the ambivalence is okay. And here's why. We didn't run into, you know, a 70, 80% opposition rate, right? We had a pretty oh, down the middle opposition okay. rate. And, and we hypothesized that part of that was that folks just didn't have any information on this restriction. So our job or my job, as I saw it with a number of co-authors was to, was to produce this information so that we could educate the public. Because what we see, I mean, there's a lot of talk, right, about felon disenfranchisement on the voting side. And what we see nationally is roughly 60, 65% support for folks with felony convictions voting. We sort of had the idea, the, the folks that worked on this public opinion piece that I did in California, uh, my co-author and I, Nick Peterson, sociologist at Miami, we had the idea that, you know, look, we think it's a lack of information. We think the ambivalence is a direct result of that. And if the public had the information, especially the empirical data that I have produced, that in fact support would have been higher. So that's where that ambivalence, I think, works to our advantage. Okay, it's, it's indicating movement and potential when it's that even, split even. Well, so sure. the media silence, you're sort of tipping your hand that direction. Mm -hmm. It's the media silence on such a nuanced topic certainly is perpetuating the stigma and that perpetuates the reentry struggle that former felons face. I appreciate you're being early on your press tour on here on Ask a Leader as you're moving up the media food chain for broader consideration of your analysis. So, so are there other than like, we, we all look for interview opportunities to have you unpack your analysis and your book, what are other opportunities to slot in these points, maybe in sort of TV produced stories? I mean, what, where would it be a, where could you see an ideal opportunity for this? Yeah, I mean, I think that this could absolutely be the topic of a, of a short documentary about the sort of the history of these, you know, I mean, we have a long history in this country of, of you know, it's in the neighborhood of 80%, 90% of jury trials worldwide are held in the United States. Um, we have a long sort of love affair with the jury. Um, it's, an institution in the United States that's revered, right? That's seen as the backbone of democracy or at least one of them. Um, it's the most direct form of civic participation that a, a citizen can have. Um, you know, folks talk about it as sort of a, a check against the overreaching government in much the same way they do voting. Um, so I think it's, it is a political right, right? Even though, or a political, um, it is in the political realm, even though it isn't, it hasn't been defined as a sort of fundamental right by the Supreme Court, it still is a, is a very important one. All that said, I think that there's a rich history with, with respect to juries as to uh, you know, certain populations in this country fighting for inclusion, right? So years ago, it was uh, women and African-Americans and um, Latinx folks all have at some point in our history had to overcome a barrier to being able to participate uh, in the jury. And I think that this next frontier uh, is folks who have been convicted. And I think that uh, it's relevant. I think it's timely. I mean, we have, you know, criminal trials going on right now uh, in Minnesota that are, you know, and, and one, I talk a little bit about the Zimmerman trial in my yes. book, you know, those in Florida, those, mm -hmm. yeah, in Florida, those sort of uh, shine a light on the idea that a, a lot of times in this country, juries just simply don't look like the communities that they're drawn from. Um, and I think a large part of that is that when you get to communities of color, who have been over-policed, who have been the subject of, you know, sort of harsh criminal justice policies aimed at their communities, 
those folks are more likely to have a criminal conviction, a felony criminal conviction than are their white counterparts. So what you see is this racializing effect, right? Where we're whitewashing juries, um, especially in counties and cities where a large percentage of the population is African-American, we're just not seeing them on juries. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that struggle, right, among, for everyone to gain access to the jury, I think, you know, this buttresses nicely with that struggle and, and could make for a, for a nice little short documentary. Well, or I can think, you know, people love to be entertained. There could be a purely fictional thing where that there's, there's a lot of public service announcements that get slotted into a pretty, pretty shiny a television production that you could fictionalize that and, and make that a, a point. So this is probably a good moment for addressing the stigma of former felons and with lots of criminal justice assumptions that are being turned on their head. You, you, are you not hopeful therefore, Jamie? Am I hopeful that the stigma is being reduced? And yes. That, and I am. I, I'm hopeful for a whole bunch of reasons. The first is that, you know, I also work at a college, right? And I'm the executive director of Project Rebound there, which operates to our, our goal, right, is to recruit and then support formerly incarcerated college students. And I think that the opportunities that have arisen in the last two, three years uh, for folks with felony convictions to pursue a degree, um, to be more involved civically with respect to the lifting of certain voter restrictions. We had Amendment 4 in Florida, and even though there was sort of a mess there with its implementation, right. um, it, it was significant in that it did restore the vote uh, to a whole bunch of folks in that state. With two-thirds of the state approving it. So yeah, put that exactly. Out there. Yeah. Bipartisan support. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that I think that the, the tide is turning. Right. We see a lot of reform being proposed in the policing realm. Um, so I think, yes, I am hopeful that having a felony conviction will no longer be sort of the mark. Right. That disqualifies you from volunteering at your kid's school or serving on a jury or anything else. Um, and, I, and I think we're headed in that direction. But again, you know, you know, this, Claudia, political wind shift and it could be short lived. I hope not. Um, but you know, while we're in this, I think, really crucial time period, I think it's important to talk a lot about as many of these collateral consequences as possible. Well, it's, it sort of undoes, I, I talk about the zero sum game and it's, it's a win for the former felons and society can certainly benefit from that. So it's, it's, a, it's a win win, there may be a third win in there. <laughs> Claudia, you mentioned that this is a win-win scenario, inclusion that is of folks with convictions uh, in our jury system. And let me just elaborate if you don't mind a little bit on sure. that. So the first win is what it means for someone with a felony convictions re-entry, right? And eliminating categorical lifelong exclusions, um, what that does for someone with a felony conviction is it stops reminding them perpetually that they're a criminal, right? Instead, we allow them then to live their life and to move into other more pro-social roles that they can accept and they can conform to. In this case, the ideal juror, right? The other way that a society or a community benefits from inclusion is that folks with convictions bring a valuable, nuanced perspective to the deliberation process, right? And from our research, they want to serve. So you're, you're dealing with two issues. One, the no-show issue, right? You're getting folks that really do want to serve. And two, you're getting folks who bring with them a knowledge that is not partial, that is not biased, but is instead valuable and dispensed, as I said earlier, even-handedly. 
So I think that's how communities win through this, right? They can increase the likelihood that someone with a conviction is going to re-enter successfully, and they can increase the likelihood that their deliberations are robust and that they get to justice when they can. I will say one thing, and this is a caveat to that. I do not ever profess to say or, or believe that if we restore jury eligibility to folks with felony convictions, that all of a sudden now re-entry won't be an issue anymore. That's not the case, right? Oh, but it's, okay. it's, it's holistic, right? There's a whole bunch of collateral consequences that impact someone's reentry. This is one piece of that tapestry. As we move along and we're in this sort of exciting time of criminal justice reform, I think that tapestry is gonna start to fall apart. And as it does, the chances for someone to successfully reenter go up exponentially. Okay, thank you. That is very helpful. So Jamie, congratulations again on your new book, as I said, it's a huge thought piece. Listeners can get a copy through their favorite independent book dealer or through the University of California Press. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today on Ask a Leader. Absolutely, anytime. My guest was James Banal, Professor of Law, Criminology and Criminal Justice, School of Criminology, Criminal Justice and Emergency Management, and Executive Director of Project Rebound, all at Cal State University, Long Beach. Well, that's my wrap. On next week's show, UCI's only Professor Matthew Beckman on the American presidency. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.